This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled "How to Be Happy in a Hospital," recorded September twenty fifth, two thousand eleven, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. I'm a little embarrassed that all you showed up to hear about my stay in the hospital. I- <laughs> I've given these great high teachings about enlightenment. <laughs> but no, you want to... There's nothing to do with that. You said how to be happy. <laughs> how, many, how many of you have been in the hospital for, let's say, three days or more in the last ten years? Uh, okay, quite a few. Quite a few haven't. A couple weeks ago, I spent five days in the hospital. And I found it to be an environment rich in spiritual opportunities. <laughs> so I thought I would pass along some of my experiences that may be helpful to you if you find yourself in a similar situation. And since I noticed that uh, every time I get up here, I see more and more gray hairs. And, uh, I think that the odds are rising more and more that people will be uh, taking advantage of the great opportunity being a hospital provides for us on a spiritual path. So, uh, some of this is going to be obvious, but perhaps some of it won't be so obvious and might be useful. So, first of all, how did I end up in the hospital? I'm going to give you a little background as we go. I'm going to give you the story, the narrative, and then I'm going to interrupt with what can be learned from various things. So, on Saturday, September 10th, I accidentally took an overdose of a medicine called metoprolol, which I take for AFIT, atrial fibrillations, irregular heartbeat. It was a very small overdose. It was a half a pill, and my total dose wasn't even the maximum dose that they can prescribe to people, so I didn't think anything of it. The next morning, Sunday, September 11th, I woke up, and I was feeling a little dehydrated. For one thing, my wife and I had had tacos the night before, and we both had a little diarrhea as a result. And, uh, and so I, I felt a little faint, and I lay down, and I took my blood pressure, and it was low. And I know from the past, if you get very dehydrated, and your blood pressure can drop, and you can start feeling a little faint. So my wife came in, and she saw me looking very pale and clammy and so forth, and she got worried. So we called the doctor. I said, no, no, I just need to drink some fluids. Everything's going to be fine. And he said, well, drink some fluids and, you know, with some salt and sugar and stuff. And if in about an hour you're not feeling better, then you got to go into the hospital. So you know, I drank some more fluids, and I actually said, no, no, let's wait another hour, another hour, you know. It's stubborn. I'm very stubborn. That's one of my conditions. It's a genetic condition. <laughs> so I'm feeling a little better, but I'm still feeling this faintness, especially when I stand up. I'm feeling a little faint. So let me stop right here because the faintness itself was fascinating. If you ever find yourself in this situation, especially if you're sort of going in and out, and I never completely passed out. There was continuity of consciousness, but there would be this radiant darkness, and then the world would dissolve into that and then come back then dissolve back into that and come back. So it was this undulating experience of this ground state of pure consciousness and then having the world arise out of it. So all the forms of the world clearly arising out of this vast, timeless, formless consciousness that is underneath everything. Now, this is considered very precious in mystical traditions. In India, for instance, there's a whole yoga, Raja yoga, devoted to entering these deep samadhis through concentration on subtler and subtler objects until finally you are completely lucid, but the whole world disappears. You are in this brown state of pure consciousness. And it's well known in India, but it's also known in the West. I want to read you a passage by the Christian mystic Dionysius the Europagite. And here's what he says. This is the 8th century. In the diligent exercise of mystical contemplation, leave behind the senses and the operations of the intellect, and all things sensible and intellectual, and all things in the world of being and non-being, that thou mayest rise by unknowing toward the union with him who transcends all being and all knowledge. For by the unceasing and absolute renunciation of thyself, 
and all things thou mayest be born on high, through pure and entire self-abnegation into the superessential radiance of the divine darkness. Well, if you have a fainting experience, that's what he's talking about. I'm serious, that is what he's talking about. Now, the trouble is, to do this Rashi yoga or these kinds of contemplative techniques, it requires a lot of time and energy. It's very difficult, particularly for a householder, to get that good at concentration, where you can concentrate so undistractedly on some subtle object that everything falls away. Uh, but there's another opportunity we have, naturally, and that's in dreamless sleep. Dreamless sleep is another chance to experience this vast, unlimited, unbounded consciousness. Here's what the Hindu Upanishads say about it. Here, dreamless sleep, the true self becomes transparent like water. The witness, one without a second. This is the ocean of Brahman, O King. This is the supreme path, the highest attainment, the greatest bliss. Now, the trouble is, to experience this, you have to be lucid. And most of us aren't lucid in dreamless sleep. There are techniques that you can do to encourage lucidity in sleep. There are practices of the night. But nevertheless, it's, it takes some effort and some uh, commitment to stick with it enough to have this experience, and it's not guaranteed that you will. Then another opportunity arises at the time of our death. Here's what uh, Bokar Rinpoche, a Tibetan master, says about this. Now, in the Tibetan tradition, death is seen as a process of reabsorption of the five fundamental elements that make up the body. So earth is dissolving into water, water is dissolving into a fire, fire is dissolving into air, air dissolves into space. So that's how they view the death process. So here's what Bokar Rinpoche says about the last part. When the last absorption is complete, we are in the phase of attainment clear light, with the clear light of fundamental nature of mind. In fact, it can only be clear light provided we identify it. Otherwise, it is simply ignorance or an unconscious darkness. So again, this is the same state you experience with fainting. Now, first of all, most uh, spiritual seekers don't want to wait until death. That's why we're on a spiritual path in the first place. But it's very important to know that if you don't awaken in this life, you will have this opportunity, and there are all sorts of death practices that you can do to prepare for death. But in all the traditions, however you get there, this experience of this ground state, this pure consciousness, is considered a golden opportunity for enlightenment, for awakening. Now, it's not that the state is what's important. It's that in this state, you have an opportunity to recognize that this ground consciousness is your true nature. It's the recognition that's important, because the state will pass, forms will arise again, and so forth. So this is why Bokar Rinpoche says, in fact, it can only be the clear light provided we identify it. Otherwise, it is simply ignorance or unconsciousness. So the same thing is true about this fainting. If you can look directly at it with an undistracted mind, and this is the trouble, of course, when you're fainting, you're usually panicky and distracted, but if you can just settle down and put the attention on that divine radiant darkness. Then you have an opportunity to recognize this is the ground consciousness that all these mystics are talking about. This is who I am, and this is the basis of everything. All our experience arises. So I'm not even in the hospital yet, but here's uh, an opportunity. If you find yourself fainting, from whatever reason, try not to panic. Try to take advantage of this opportunity. So then, uh, that afternoon, finally, Jennifer says, okay, come on, we're going to go to the hospital. Enough of this. I don't care if you're stubborn or not. We're going. So, no, she's the boss. i got to go. <laughs> so, we go to the campus Sacred Heart, because I've never been to Riverbend. She's never been to Riverbend. I don't even know how to get it. I want to try that. So, we go to the campus, back to the old campus. We know that one. And immediately, I say, uh, you know, having heart problems. Well, actually, there's nobody in the emergency room. It's really great. But right into the back there, they start running tests on me and whatnot. First of all, there are two things going on that I wasn't aware of. Not only was my blood pressure low, but my heart rate had 
slowed down to the 30s, which is really quite low and can be dangerous. And then they also detected these enzymes that are often markers of a heart attack. So, boom, that's it. You had a heart attack, and we're sending you over to River Bend, and uh, you're going to be admitted and all that. By the way, in all this business of feeling faint, I never had any pain whatsoever. That's why I never thought of it as a heart attack. But anyway, they find these markers, you know. Okay, so uh, I had only been in a hospital, in a civilian hospital. I've been in military hospitals. In a civilian hospital once before, about 15 years ago, for a couple days, to have my gallbladder out. So most of this is pretty new. I mean, some of it wasn't so new. But one thing was the ambulance ride. Now, uh, they wouldn't let Jennifer drive me, so they put me in this ambulance. And see, there's some of this can be fun. Now, this isn't so much of a spiritual opportunity. But, you know, I've seen this in the movies, on the TV. <laughs> well, here I am, lying in the back, and the gal's got me hooked up to the monitors, and she's monitoring my heart. And we're zooming along through traffic. They don't have the sirens on, because I'm not on this doorstep yet. But they're not as comfortable as you think they might be. They hurt the things flying around. You know. Anyway, I'm just saying, right from the get-go, there are new experiences you can enjoy. So don't screen that out. You know, be open to that. Okay. So that evening, I get to the hospital, and they give you a gown, uh, you know, that buttons up the back, and it's weird. They hook me up to a wireless monitor. <laughs> You know, they have these little suction things. They put it all over your chest with wires, and they all go to this wireless monitor that sends signals back to the main desk so that they can watch your heart rate and all this kind of stuff going on, right? Then they put in an IV lock. They stick a needle in your vein, and it has then two little tubes that are plugged, but they're opened up. And, you know, whenever they need to put medicine in you, they can just hook you up and put medicine in there. And this stays in your arm the whole time you're in the hospital, see? So that's in there, and it's taped down. And then right away, they hooked me up to some fluids to try to flush out this medication that I had to get me rehydrated and whatnot. So now, what do I do? I mean, 12 hours, my total world has changed. So what do I do? So let's take a piece of advice from another Tibetan, Tulku Urgen Rinpoche. Here's what he says. Although one might think a comfortable state of body and mind facilitates dharma practice, difficulty, sickness, or unhappiness are actually better incentives. The perfect time to practice meditation is when one feels completely without peace. So, this is the first big lesson, first opportunity. It's the attitude. When you're in the hospital, Check your attitude. And if your attitude is some horrible misfortune has befallen you, see what's going on and switch it. This is a wonderful opportunity to practice. So instead of viewing all this in a very negative sense, you can just right away start viewing it in a positive sense. All the stuff now is going to happen to you is going to be grist for your spiritual milk. You can even think of it as you're going on a retreat. And, well, a lot of things in the hospital are similar to retreat. You're relieved of a lot of responsibilities and distractions, right? You don't have to prepare your meals, you don't have to do the dishes, you don't have to take out the garbage, you don't have to walk the dog. All this stuff is going to be taken care of for you. When you go on a retreat, if you're going to some places designed for retreats, that's what the staff does. They take over all that stuff, and then you are free to do your practice. I, oh, I would also suggest, if you possibly can, Leave your computer home. <laughs> if you run a business, you might not be able to. But if you can, give yourself a break from the emails and the da-da-da-da-da-da. There are some differences, however, that you'll discover from a retreat and being in the hospital. And most of them have to do with uh, you don't get those nice long blocks of time in silence to intensify and deepen your meditation practice. People are coming in all the time to draw your blood, take the blood pressure, uh, roll you over, do this and that, they do whatever, you know, just constant interruptions. And you want to say, hey, whoa, whoa, I'm here on a retreat, stop. But they won't listen to you. And what I discovered, and I, each of you would be different, what I discovered, instead of using this time to try to intensify very disciplined meditation practice, I use this as a time for creative insights. Or you could use it as a time for vision quests. A vision quest is when 
you're some juncture of your life, and then you're asking for guidance. That comes from beyond the ego. That's very critical in a vision quest. And the way you do a vision quest, and you can do it very intensely if you would do it in the Native American traditions, for instance, uh, where you go out with nothing basically into the wilderness and you cry for a vision, but you can do it in a more relaxed form in the hospital where there's, there's time in between all these interruptions to focus on some problem. Now, I'm not talking about some uh, superficial problem, but some life problem, some life koan. And if you're in the hospital, this may come up naturally. What am I going to do with the rest of my life here, you know? And you just focus on that. You don't think about it. You don't spin your intellect around it. You just ponder it. You ponder it in your heart. And there's no guarantee, but if you stay with it, chances are you're going to get some sort of deep insight. It might come in the form of actual vision. It might come as a dream in the middle of the night. It might just come in the form of an insight, a kind of knowing, this is what I need to do. It's like a call, and you hear the call clearly, and then you can respond. So that would be a good way to think of the kind of retreat you could do in hospital. At least this was my experience. Now, hospital has its own time. You know, my mother, uh, in the last 20 years of her life, she lived in Mexico. And my brother and I would go down to visit her once a year. And you get on the plane, and halfway from here to Mexico City, it's very important that you shift from this time to Mexican time. Many cultures have a different time. It's not a right time or wrong time, it's just different. If you don't make that shift, and I've met plenty of gringos down there who didn't make that shift, you are going to suffer. You are going to suffer constant little nagging suffering. Things don't happen the way they're supposed to happen. If you make that shift, it's okay. You know? If you're going to meet somebody at noon, in Mexico it means, well, sometimes sort of between mid-morning and comida, you know, the meal there. Sometimes it won't meet the same day. Well, I'll come in the afternoon. Well, which day? Okay. <laughs> Not this afternoon. All right. Well, the, the next afternoon. And it's, hospitals have the same kind of time. It's a different time, a different rhythm. And if you can't make that shift, you're going to be constantly resisting and battling it. If you can just go with it, this is the way the hospitals run, okay, then you just flow with it. You know, they come in, they take your blood pressure, they draw your blood, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it's fine if you can just roll with the rhythm. So, back to the narrative. So the next day, they are finished flushing, and they got all the meds out of my system. And the doctor comes in, and she says, okay, I had a heart attack, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to order an angiogram for you. That's where they stick a catheter up an artery into your heart, and then they shoot. <laughs> they shoot in some dye, and then they take photographs, and they can see how badly your arteries are clogged. And she said, you know, depending on the situation, we may have to put a stent in. And she also said, you know, I mean, if it's really serious, you may have to have bypass surgery. And then in the afternoon, assuming we just get by with a stent or something, we'll put in a pacemaker. Well, 24 hours ago, I was fine, walking around in perfect health. Here I am, I want to have an angiogram, surgery, stents, you know. My gosh, what a turnaround. So this was a, quite a shocking situation, mentally shocking. So the second thing you need to learn is you need to start applying our principle of detachment. You know, we have four spiritual principles. Attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender. Attention, you don't really have to worry about. The hospital's going to get your attention. <laughs> that will be hard to avoid. The commitment, well, you ain't going anywhere. I mean, unless you're going to pull off the wires and run like hell. But now it comes to detachment. So, and some of these are obvious. For instance, hospital cuisine will bring out any hidden attachment you have to particular kinds of food. Some of it sounds really good, you know, like the carved turkey breast with a little gravy. Oh, yeah. And then it comes, you know. <laughs> If you had an idea of what a turkey breast looked like or tasted like, well, you've got to let that go. <laughs> if you don't let it go, you're going to suffer. Believe me. <laughs> Years ago, uh, in the beginning of my spiritual path, 
I took a trip around these various spiritual communities in the West with my little Volkswagen bus. And I was just coming from Hollywood, and I had been used to this very expensive, sophisticated food, and I knew a lot of these places were vegetarian, and I knew I was going to be faced with eating a different kind of diet. So I adopted this little discipline, a little vow, and it's eat what's put before you without secret disdain or concealed complaint. Actually, I got that from Jesus, from the Bible. At one point, he sends out his disciples, and he says, wherever you go, eat what's put before you. Now, if you're going to the hospital, you might want to remember that. <laughs> before you even get there. So that's an immediate thing you can practice detachment. Uh, the routines of hospitals and the guard, they will expose any a little attachment you have to privacy. Uh, you'll find these gowns are always falling open. And if you spend your whole time trying to hold them closed, you know, that's all you're going to be doing there. <laughs> and they're always rolling you over and doing these things. So the next morning, this is why I really let go of this one, Alicia came in. She's the one who's going to shave my groin because they can either stick their catheter up an artery in your groin or they can put it through your wrist. It ended up being my wrist, but they still shave your groin and then you have to bathe and you have to rub yourself down with a special antibiotic soap and so forth. So I'm still hooked up to these fluids, see, so I'm walking around with this hack rack, you know, with things hanging on. And I'm going into the bathroom, and Alicia, she was a character. She's farting all over the place. And she said, oh, I'm so embarrassed, Mr. Moore. How would you like to have a nurse that farts all the time? <laughs> And she's finished shaving me, you know, with the little towels trying to get out. And she said, would you like some help, Mr. Morrowick? And I said, sure, come on in. So she came on in and she scrubbed me down and it was wonderful. So I didn't care anymore. Once you've been scrubbed by Alicia, believe me, that's, that's it. So, now, but most important is practicing detachment from all those thoughts about what's going to happen to me. And I don't care how enlightened you are, the mind is conditioned to generate these thoughts. They arise. Well, what's it going to be like? I'm going to stick this catheter up my arteries and I'm going to die into my heart, you know, all this kind of stuff. It turns out not that bad, actually. It sounds awful. But if you have practiced meditation and you've learned how to allow thoughts to self-liberate, it's very easy. You just lie there, and the thoughts come, and you know they are impermanent. You've practiced this and practiced this, and they arise, and they pass away. And then you are always living with the truth. And the truth is, you don't know what's going to happen to you. And this is always the truth of our situation. We do not know. You don't know in a hospital. You don't know here. You know, you think as soon as this is over, I'm going to go get some tacos. Maybe you shouldn't get tacos. But you're going to go and you walk out the door, and a piece of that space junk that didn't fall in the ocean comes and you're gone. You know, you don't know. You don't know that that's not going to happen. We never know. So this business of allowing thoughts to self-liberate is not only very useful to alleviate suffering, but it keeps returning us to the truth, the truth of our situation. And just living in that truth already is the beginning of the end of suffering. Because it's being open. Your heart is open to the experience. You're embracing the experience. You're allowing it to happen. You're not fighting it. You're not resisting it. You're not pushing away. And this is what the path is all about. Learning how to do this. Learning how to embrace life rather than fight life. So this is a very specific situation where you can see how that happens. Then, the hospital gives us a wonderful opportunity to practice love and compassion for the hospital staff. Many of whom you're going to discover, unless you're all wrapped up in yourself, are very stressed out. And most of them are really trying to help you. And they have a very stressful job, and they're overworked and underpaid and all that kind of stuff. So if you are attentive and open to it, you'll be able to interact with them in a lovely way. And I'm going to just give you one example of an ongoing drama that involves several nurses that happened to me. The next morning, when I was supposed to have the angiogram, I looked over at my IV block, and the little lines were full of blood. So Lola was the night nurse. She's from the Philippines. 
And she came in, and, and I pointed it out to her. And she said, oh, yes, okay, Mr. Moore. She tried to flush it out. She couldn't flush it out. So then she said, okay, well, I'll put one in on the other arm. So then she got her needle, and then she put the tourniquet on. She's looking for a vein, and she can't find it. And I can see she's really getting upset. She says, I don't want to hurt you. I can't find a good vein. And then I realized it's 7 o'clock. This is shift, the change. And she's ready to go home. And now she's under this pressure to do this. I said, okay, look, 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 forget about it. Go on, go home. And when the next shift comes in, I'll, I'll you know, point that out. And she said, no, no, I'm supposed to tell them about it. I can't just not do it. I said, I won't say a word. <laughs> I won't say it. I'll just point it out that it's not flush. And then, you know. Well, she was really caught, I can see. You know, she's really conflicted. So she said, I do have to go report in. Now it's like 10 after 7 or 15 after. She goes off. And then she's gone for a while, and then a Walter comes in. Now, Walter has been around the block a few times. He comes in, and he said, yeah, Lola told me what happened. I told her to go home, too. You know, so she's gone. She says, I'll, I'll take care of this, right? So he comes over, and he ties me up, and he's looking for the vein. <laughs> and he draws a few stats, and he can't get it in. So he said, well, I'll just flush this one out. So he goes back, and he does the flushing again, and it's all flushed out. Fine. Okay, great. So they wheel me down to the angiogram. Uh, procedure room or something. But the lock is in the wrong arm. So the nurse down there has to put one on this arm because this is this side of the table where the drips are. So he goes back to work again. He's doing this. Now, see, this is amazing. I mean, this drama is playing out where this one little thing about this arm, they can't find a vein. He finally gets it in. But now he's apologizing. He's, oh, I really botched it. He it all up. <laughs> I said, it'll work for surgery. But I tell your nurse when you get back, I'm really so sorry. And I say, it's okay. It's all right. You know, if worse stuff's worse, this one works now. And, you know, I'm trying to calm him down. He's going to be controlling all this. So I want him to be. It's a little self-interest in here. <laughs> anyway. So then they go, and I do the angiogram. I'll tell you the result of that in a minute. But then I get back to the floor, and Walter comes back, and he sees this botched job. So he takes that out, and uh, he tries it. He can't. So he calls the professional, the gunfighter from the lab. You know. <laughs> the lab, that's all they do, see. So this guy, Misha, he's from Fiji. He comes in with this little plastic thing. So now I start kidding him. I said, I'm trying to, uh, you know, lie his fears. I'm saying, now... You know, are you sure you're up to this? I mean, many have tried before you in the <laughs> So he said, oh, I can do it. And sure enough, he goes, he says, well, no veins there. I'll put it in your hand. <laughs> Fix it all up. Marches out. So finally, that's resolved. But the whole drama and the interaction was just so much fun. <laughs> I have to tell you, another thing you have to be detached from, at least in this condition, they're taking blood all the time. They sometimes take a whole vial of blood. I'm pre-diabetic, so they're also checking my blood sugar. So they pop in every few hours and prick my finger. I mean, it's like being in the house of Dracula or something. <laughs> I wonder what they do with this blood sometimes. If it ends up in the cuisine, I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Now, it turns out from this angiogram that I didn't have a heart attack. Not only did I not have a heart attack, but as the doctor says, your arteries are clean as a whistle. And the nurse who was trying to put this lock in me when I'm still down there, she said, it's really remarkable. A man of your age has no rust in his arteries. A man of my age, thank you very much, but that's okay. I was glad to get the news. I can go home now. I can slobber butter on my bread. I don't have to worry about that. And so I asked for pictures. So I got a whole bunch of photos. And, you know, I can't tell. I'm going to take them to my doctor. But apparently they're very beautiful. They're these pure gray arteries with no obstructions whatsoever. In them. They're looking at like, they're looking at a custom, you know. <laughs> anyway, so no surgery, no stents, no pacemaker. You know, wow, see, everything's turned around, hasn't it? All that stuff the mind was doing before, again, it just drives on this point. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. Now, you also don't want to get attached to the thoughts that arise from this situation. So always we have to be aware of how, how our minds are tracking our lives and how they're always trying to decide what's what, and they can't decide what's what. More suffering, I think, is caused by 
thinking about what's going to happen than any actual pain and discomfort we have. And you might notice that if you're in the hospital. Okay, so um, throughout this, there are some incidents of humor. And again, if you are open to the experience and you're taking a positive attitude, you'll notice them. Otherwise, you'll be so worried about yourself, you won't notice. For instance, my doctor's name, Dr. Gorey. He's the hardest one. Dr. Gorey, I kid you not. All the other names I've changed because I don't want you to end up rubber banded, but his name is Dr. Gorey. So then I had this cleaning woman, and she came in you know, every afternoon, and I don't know why she picked me to talk about this, but she wanted to talk about heaven. She's very worried about heaven. What are we going to do in heaven? And she's saying, well, you know, they say you're going to be meeting your relatives, and so I think maybe she's worried about, you know, <laughs> she did something to her relatives. Anyway, and then she's worried about the end of days. When are they going to come, you know? And so I know something about the Bible. I quoted there's something in the Bible where Jesus says, no man knows the end of days, not even me. Only the Father in heaven knows the end of days. And then she said, yes, that's right. But when is it going to come? <laughs> and anyway, we had this interesting discussion about heaven and the end of days. And then this was the best one-liner in the whole uh, retreat. I mean, yeah, retreat. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things the doctor said, we're going to keep you because we're going to try you out on a different medicine to control this underlying problem of the AFib, the irregular heart. Because they didn't want to put me back in the toprol because I had, you know, had this reaction to it. So they're going to see if this works. So they're monitoring throughout the night to see if this new medicine is going to work. In the middle of the night, someone from the lab shows up. By now I know them because they come in and they carry their little basket of vials and syringes and stuff, and you can tell them immediately. And so as I said, uh, either they take a whole vial or they're just going to prick my finger. So I'm lying there, you know, and I think, well, if they're going to take a whole vial, I have to sit up. But if they're just going to prick my finger, I'll just prick it and I'll go right back to sleep. So I hold up my finger like this and I say, and she's a middle-aged, kind of stocky woman. And I say, um, one prick, without missing a beat, if I'm lucky. Flip, dot, out, she's gone. Right? And there you saw her face fall in shadow. get up in the morning, and the doctor comes, and he's seen the monitor from the night, and so forth. Well, this new drug isn't working. It's not straightening out my irregular heartbeat. And plus, now there are these pauses sometimes I have between heartbeats. So some of them are kind of long. They could be dangerous and all that. So I said, well, look, why don't we go back to the metoprolol? I mean, it's served me well all these years. I've been on it practically 10 years, and no problems. And he said, well, you know, you had this OD. So, yeah, but that was my fault. It wasn't the drug's fault. I screwed up. They said, well, okay, we could do that. And they said, but I would recommend you get a pacemaker. Well, I said, a pacemaker, why? You know, in my mind, see, this donkey is middle-aged. Now, I'm 68, but nevertheless, the donkey's still middle-aged. Now, a pacemaker puts you over the line. You can't be middle-aged and have a pacemaker. You are definitely old. You know? You're an old geezer if you have a pacemaker. I mean, you shuffle along you know, like this, and everything goes... Look at him. The only reason he's alive is he's got the machine. So I'm thinking about it. But the doctor points out, he says, look, the pacemaker does is it launches your heart, and if your heart slows down or starts to pause, it's absent. It keeps it going. So if you don't have it, and you're driving, and you've got a pause, you could pass out, and you could hurt someone, kill someone. So it's true, we have a precept around here, harmlessness, not to injure or kill any being heedlessly or needlessly. So, compassion triumphed over vanity. This was the climax of my stay at the hospital, the big moment of the session. So I agreed, I said, I got to talk to my wife. If she doesn't mind being married to an old geezer, I'll do it. I ran it by Jennifer, she said, fine, do that. So I surrendered to the fact that I have to have a pacemaker. So they kept me one more night, they were reloading me on the metoprolol. Then in the morning, I was going to have a pacemaker put in. And sure enough, that worked out okay. By the morning, my heart rhythm was back to normal, no more pauses. And then uh, I call up Jennifer, say, you know, come get me around noon. They still have to check me out. So then there's one last little tapper here. 
while I'm waiting to be discharged, one of the things they do is the uh, representative from the pacemaker company comes in, and she puts a um, device over the pacemaker, and she's checking it to make sure it's uh, operating properly. And then she goes, and about two or three minutes later, another woman comes running in, and she's got a box in her hand. She's ripping it open, and she's like, I've got to change the battery. I've got to change the battery. And she's got these AAA types. I'm saying, what do you mean you've got to change the battery? i got a pacemaker that's sewn into my chest. You're talking about you've got to change the battery. And, and she starts reaching for my chest. I go, whoa, whoa. I said, what are you doing? And she says, oh, i got to change the battery on your little monitor, your wireless monitor that's sending the signals into the, into the main desk. So I told her what uh, my fear was. We had a big laugh. So that day, finally, they checked me out, and Jennifer came and got me. Now, I know that um, the whole incident turned out pretty good. I found out that uh, I have these beautiful, clean arteries. I can eat pizza and all that stuff. Don't have to worry about any of that. I do have a pacemaker. But actually, the pacemaker keeps my heart going at a minimum of 60 beats per minute. And uh, on the metopolo, I was averaging probably about 55. So I actually can feel like maybe a little bit more energy now. And I know that... Going in hospital doesn't always have that kind of outcome. And the opportunities for spiritual practice could have been a lot more serious, and the lesson's harder to learn. Nevertheless, even if the lesson is you have to finally face your mortality, you know, we're all going to die, and the only difference between us and people who have some diagnosis of cancer, some terminal illnesses, that they now know it in their bones. But even in that situation, the more we fight reality, the more suffering. The more we surrender to reality, the more we'll discover that inner happiness, that eternal, timeless happiness is part of that ground state. And a hospital is a perfect place to do it. It's really a perfect place to discover that. There is no escape from life. There is only surrender to life. And one of the metaphors I like is that life is a dance. And we don't have a choice of whether we can dance or not. The only choice we have is whether we're going to resist it and be dragged around the dance floor and that's going to be miserable. Or whether we throw ourselves into it and dance and then it's going to be beautiful. Even though it's going to come to an end, it's still going to be beautiful. So that's the opportunities that I discovered being in a hospital. And you'll discover, I'm sure, your own. But some of the things you might remember, particularly about this whole attitude turning around. That it's not some horrible misfortune that you end up in hospital, but it is going to be an opportunity if you make use of it. So, are there any questions? Yes? Well, I have a theory. I think that it's that New York has strong sandwich at Christmas that keeps your arm. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark said the same thing. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. No, it's actually it is the mayonnaise of the red wine. <laughs> yes? With the exception of being nice to the staff, I think that I did the opposite of every single thing you mentioned in the hospital. And uh, I just wanted to thank you for sharing your story and, and the inspiration because um, I, I, the bottom of the hospital scared the crap out of me because it's probably close. But um, I've never thought of breaking it well, this is one of the reasons that we have precepts. It's not that they are so profound or anything, but if you work with precepts and if you recite them every day, they're with you when you need them. And so working with precepts and having precepts to live by, I think, is a really important part of a spiritual path. Um, Joel, you said at the very beginning of this talk that you entered the hospital and you started doing essentially your meditation practice. I think it was around not grasping at anything. I can't remember exactly now. Um, but you said, um, I know you've answered this many times before, I'm just going to ask you to answer it again. Um, you said, 
I wouldn't, I didn't allow myself to, um, to think about, think a lot about these things, to uh, get going with stories. And then he said, I would just ponder it. What, what is... Okay, they, I think there are two things separate out. First of all, there are two different practices. One is the practice of when your mind starts cooking up all the stories about what's going to happen to me here in the hospital and right. da, 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 that the truth of the matter is you don't know. And then you can apply this practice of allowing thoughts to self-liberate. You watch the thoughts, you don't try to suppress them. You've trained in this, you see that thoughts are impermanent. You don't have to do anything about them. In many traditions, it's described like writing on water. If you spend some time just watching your thoughts, you see they don't last. They appear to have more solidity and to last longer because they start to connect up into stories. But each thought is just like writing on water. So if you can look directly at your thoughts, they will just vanish. Another one will come and will vanish. Another one will come and will vanish. And in between that, there is just this stillness. There is just this awareness. This beautiful, clear, open awareness. So you can always tap into that by just allowing thoughts to do what they do, which is they come, they go poof, and they go. The other practice is the practice of vision quest. Let's say you're in the hospital and you are facing something serious and you're thinking there's several things you could do with your life. Maybe you've been working and you could retire early and you could devote your time to helping the homeless or something, you know. But you might then say, okay, what should I do? And this is a question, by the way, of the heart. It's not a question of the mind. There are mental questions, you know, should I invest here or here that the mind can figure out? But a question of what should I do with my life is a question of the heart. The mind cannot answer that question. We get in such trouble because the mind tries to answer the question. No one else is speaking up, so I'll, I'll tell you what you should do. But it really doesn't know. It can't answer the question. But if we wait, if we sit with the question, if we ponder it, if we allow all those thoughts to self-liberate that the mind kicks up, then we will get an answer that feels like it comes from beyond the ego. It feels like it's some sort of divine guidance. And it often comes in a dream. Uh, it can come literally in the form of a vision, like a waking dream. Or it can come just in very strong, intuitive hit. You suddenly have to say, ah, that's what I need to do. You know? I need to go to India. I couldn't even explain to people why. I know that that's what I have to do. And it has this kind of certainty and clarity to it. So that's the second practice. Formulating some question like that, and then sitting with it, and see what happens. Is that helpful? Yes. Yes, I would. I thought it was an interesting thing, you go into a different culture, a different time, more silently. Because I think that kind of amazing. When I go in, I'm something as simple as cataract surgery. They refused me the first time my blood pressure was too high. I feel like it's a different. I guess, you know, they're rushing around and don't know what's going on and they say, I'm not here, I'm isolated, you know, from that culture. And so then my phone pressure goes up. And I just wondered if you had any feelings. Uh, well, from the very beginning, I knew enough to engage right away. I'm trying to put them at ease. You know, this sounds awful to, to phrase it like that. I'm not thinking about, i got to put these people at ease. Or, it's just, I've learned from my practice and stuff Everybody's happier if you are happy and if you are engaging people at a level of trying to put everybody at ease and spreads. So from the very get-go, I ask questions, I kid them about things. And this, this would apply, by the way, in a hospital culture or going to Mexico or any place. You know. So I think you're very right. That's one of the things. We feel isolated. But if you surrender to the culture, you know, to what's going on, instead of trying to maintain your culture, you know. If you go to India, then learn from India. If you go to a hospital, learn from a hospital. So again, it starts with a question of attitude, and then it becomes quite spontaneous. The flow gets established, you know. And that's where happiness lies, that spontaneous, open embrace of your situation. If we're open to it, openings come. I mean, the, the life keeps presenting us opportunities to engage. And the trick is, if our attention's focused on ourselves, and what's going to happen to me, that and that, we don't notice it. We don't see it. We're blind to it. 
if the attention is off yourself and it's out there and it's open, what's going on? It's fascinating. It really is. I mean, it was an adventure to me, actually. The whole thing. Yeah. So I was thinking about this last night, and I guess I was trying to second-guess you. And I knew it would be about attitude. Um, and I thought gratitude came to me as, okay, it's going to be about gratitude. And I want to know where did gratitude come into it, because I know it was there. Several times, like when they were going to take me down for these procedures, they wanted to give me Valium or something like that. And they would remark, well, you don't seem very upset about all this stuff. And I actually asked them when I was having these procedures to give me the minimum sedative because I wanted to be aware of what was going on. And then they would say, how come you're so, you know, this doesn't seem to bother you? And I didn't say, well, because I'm an enlightened spirit. <laughs> but I told them what they could relate to, and it's the truth. If you were having heart problems in Eugene, where would the ideal place to be? On the cardiac ward of Sacred Heart Hospital, right? So how could you feel more comfortable, more safe, more secure? You're surrounded by people who are experts. If anything goes wrong, they're going to try their damnedest to help you. What else could you ask for, you see? So that's gratitude. Being in that community, in that situation, with this kind of problem, is quite miraculous. It's wonderful. So the whole experience was one of you know, being grateful that that's where I was. It could have been a lot worse, you know. Yes? When you were talking about the incident of fainting and those um, that, uh, pondering what was happening in those spaces in between. Yes. Same thing? Same thing about what? In fainting, you were saying like how you have that kind of clearness of just being there. And then you were talking about when you were doing the practice of pondering, all those questions, and there'd be that space kind of in between. Right. Same kind of feeling or different? I mean, same feeling as the fainting thing? Not the same physical right. feeling, but the same kind of uh, well, yeah, state in, of being. Yes, but with this qualification. In fact, all the time, there's a, a dimension of that pure consciousness that we could say envelops everything. It's always here. We don't actually ever lose it. We're actually walking around in the dream that the dreamless sleep has produced. And the awareness, the consciousness, hasn't ever gone anywhere. So, you know, sometimes you can have this experience where just all form and everything just completely disappears. And the reason it's so precious is because there's nothing there to distract us. It's like this. Let's say you had a, a beautiful black velvet cloth. And you wanted people to appreciate the cloth itself. And there were jewels scattered all over the cloth. And the, the only way we can appreciate the jewels is because they are on this black velvet cloth. It shows them off, you know what I mean? But you're trying to direct attention to the cloth. Well, nobody's looking at the cloth, they're looking at the jewels. But if you start removing the jewels and you get them all off, there's nothing left but the cloth. So it becomes obvious if you're attuned to it. So that's that state of pure consciousness. Now, when you're doing a pondering, yes, you're allowing your thoughts about what you should do to self-liberate, and you're staying with just the question, and you start to experience the same kind of clarity, this unobstructive awareness. That is the essence of this pure consciousness. But still, there's form. You're aware there's form around you. It's not like you've lost all the sense of any kind of form. So there is definitely a relationship. It's just not as dramatic, but there's this space and this clarity. It's always available to us, by the way. We're just usually so busy and so distracted, we don't notice. And one of the major, major tasks in the spiritual path is to discover ways that we can become more and more aware of this ground of our existence. Is that helpful? Yeah. Uh, my recent stay in Riverbend is very similar to yours in many respects, and I, I attribute that to me coming around here for a number of years. But uh, one of the things that I, I was intrigued by and I found you most useful is the thought that undergoing all this is who is this happening to? That was, that was a great kind of uh, grounding thought. Very good. Uh, no time was I afraid. Very good. 
this is, a, again, a question that you can ask yourself anytime, but it's most valuable when we ask it in times when the self feels threatened. That sense of self becomes very prominent in situations where we feel like it might be taken away from us. And so that's an excellent time to do this inquiry. Who is this happening to? Who is afraid of what's going on? Who is worried? Who is concerned? Whatever is going on, you just come back to, well, who is it that is experiencing all this? And see if you can find any individual separate entity self. And that's what mystics say. It's a challenge. You think you are some individual entity separate self? See if you can find it. And their testimony is, we went and looked. We never found one. I have absolutely no idea what this is happening to. Absolutely no idea. Okay, time for one more. Anybody got a burning question on the hospital issue, which may not come up again for a while. I hope it doesn't come up again for a while. How's Jennifer doing? <laughs> uh, she's having to detach from having to do the grocery shopping and the taking out the garbage and all the extra chores that this week got piled on her. She's doing very, very well with that, I have to report. How long are you going to push that one? <laughs> I'm going to see the doctor tomorrow for my first checkup, and uh, he or she will presumably tell me what I can do and what I can't do, and I don't have to decide. The doctor will decide, and that's just the way it will I must say, and I'm stubborn, I do things like I lift this heavy walk. And she says, what are you doing that? You're not supposed to lift your arm. So she scolds me often about that. But I think she's ready to go back. <laughs> okay, well, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to stay, have some tea, come over to the library at uh, 2 o'clock. Check that out if you want. Until we see you again, peace to you all.